Let's give it up for the worship team for a minute. I love all these brothers and sisters do. It's, it's a challenge. One of the things I love, but it's also a struggle with our church sometimes, is how much we love fellowship. And it can make it hard to lead the worship when everybody's walking around talking. But uh, I do want to just say real quick, I really love this church. I'm very grateful for it. Hold on, I'm going to go put this down. So sweet, whoever said that. I love you too. All right. Um, well, I am really grateful that we get to be here together. It's cloudy outside, which really actually encourages me. Um, and and kind of, I guess, kind of on that note, I want to start. I want to start off the, the sermon today with some good news. All right, some good news. Uh, you know, we support uh, churches in the Middle East. And Jesse Mufid Tome, who leaves the church in Lebanon, have come out here many different times. But we found out this weekend that their daughter Abigail got baptized this weekend. And so we are really fired up for them. Abby sent us a, sent us a really sweet uh, little text message the other day at like one o'clock in the morning because, you know, time change. And um, uh, yeah, we're just really excited for the Tomes. Just continue to pray for the Middle East. Uh, but as well, I know it all already got brought up, but yesterday, I love when we get to do the MLK project every year. And uh, I know as a church, our goal is not just to have one project or to try to, you know, I don't want to overbuild us up over one weekend. But, uh, but it was so cool. I love walking around during these projects and seeing all the, all the disciples that are serving together and just the people in general. Got some pictures here. This is our, our kickoff that we had all together at 8.30. But we know before that, we had the breakfast crew that was there at the crack of dawn, serving, and uh, we got all kinds of pictures of the meals and stuff. We had people that were out painting. This is James and uh, Ken, I believe, out there on the really tall ladder, trying not to kill themselves. We had people painting walls, just trying to make it look good. Uh, this was a group. We had, we had some women that were, they were doing crafts with some of the moms that were there at the rescue mission. Uh, so while the kids are running around, I don't have any pictures of the kids because we're technically not allowed to show it in a public setting. But uh, but we we had a group that was helping the kids, doing activities and playing games. And man, after two hours of chasing a bunch of five-year-olds around, we were exhausted. But while that was going on, some of the moms were were doing some crafts and stuff that were uh, there. It was just it was such a great time that we got to be together. Oh, and this is a. Uh, uh, a friend of mine who owns a barber shop in La Quinta, and he came out to offer some haircuts to the men uh, towards the end of it. But um, but I feel like these are these are moments, and not in a, a bragging or an, e- an ego type of way, where I feel like the church really shines in a special way. When we get to serve, we get to live out what Jesus intended for us to, uh, not just in a preachy way, but but in a serving and loving way. And so I'm really grateful for our church and the time to get to, uh, to, get to do that together. Uh, what I want to do, I'm, let's say a word of prayer, and then, uh, and then we're going to get into our, our, our stuff here. God, I do want to just thank you so much for your love and your grace on us. So grateful for the new year, so grateful for, uh, for this church, for the relationships we have, but so grateful more than that to, uh, to be your children and, and to be a part of what you are doing here in, in the world, uh, but also here in the valley. God, and I pray that right now you will, you will draw us into your word, that you'll give us, help us to get full attention uh, to what you want to preach to us, Father, that, that, uh, that, that you, your, the voice of the Holy Spirit will really speak through your scriptures and through, through what I share. God, I love you. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
You know, the staff here in the Inland, in the Inland Empire as a, as a whole, and also in the desert, we've been doing a lot of talking and praying about what, what does God really want us to focus on this year? And, uh, you know, we want to be visionary. This is 2020. You gotta have 2020 vision, you know, all the, all the goal setting things and stuff. We've got, we've got some things that we've been praying about that's like God has put on our hearts. Uh, that we want to be able to do this year, uh, things that ways that feel like God really wants to stir us up, but a lot of it is even kind of not not super cohesive yet, and uh, and so we are going to be talking a lot about vision in the upcoming months. But we want to ask, I want to ask you uh, on, on behalf of the church, Stephen, just be praying for us. Pray that God will help us as we try to figure out what kind of vision He wants us to have for this year. Not just a bunch of checklist things or, you know, we're just going to go save the world, but, but, but to really be focused on what God wants us to do this year as a church. Please be praying for us in your times with God. Um, but we're going to start off our, our year here in a series. We're going to do something a little bit different. Because, you know, we tend to make things complicated in life. We tend to clutter up our lives with a lot of stuff. And the irony is we want things to be simple, right? We, we want our lives to be, I probably, every one of us here, if you say, okay, would you like your life to be more complicated or more simple? That's a no-brainer, right? But we tend to make things difficult on ourselves, even in that desire. You know, I found a blog as I was doing some research getting ready for this about simplicity and living simply. And ironically, I found a, an article called 21 Ways We Complicate Life. And I found this ironic because after about three times reading this, I was like, they're doing too much here. It's not that complicated. It's really like two ways that we complicate our lives. And so I didn't even read the rest of it. You know, there's a concept out there I'm sure you heard of called cord cutting. It's the idea of saying, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pay the cable companies or direct TV for my television. I'm gonna pay streaming services because they're cheaper. I'm gonna sever the ties. I'm not gonna pay a hundred dollars for a bunch of channels I don't even watch. But now there's like a dozen or so some odd streaming services out there. They're all $10 to $15 a piece. They add up really quickly because, you know, some of them are exclusive or whatever. And Netflix just keeps shoving stuff down your throat because they don't want you to leave. And so they just keep showing more movies and more documentaries and more like everything. So there's so much to watch. I thought it was going to be more simple. You know, in history, this has been true, too. In, uh, in history, there's been debate for years about who built the pyramids. Years and years. And there's all kinds of theories and reasons and how. And, and really a lot of it is to kind of just say, it can't be the Bible. It wasn't the Hebrews. That wasn't who did it. There's way more other possibilities or things that happened. You know, when asked by the History Channel where the pyramids in Egypt came from, Giorgio Sicalis gave the best answer, the simplest answer he could think of. It was aliens. And if you think I'm joking, look it up. That is legit. The History Channel did a whole series, and this guy talks about it. It was aliens that landed on the earth. That's where the pyramids came from. It couldn't have been the Hebrews that built it. That's too easy. AARP has done a lot of research for retirement purposes. You know, one of the things that they found that, that, that hinders retirement in people is clutter. We have so much clutter in our lives. They actually did a, did a little bit of research. Americans spent roughly $37.5 billion in 2018 on storage units. Because we got too much stuff. 
We overcomplicate our lives with stuff. It's part of why last year Marie Kondo exploded onto the scene with her Netflix series. I know some of you guys read the book before that came out. The, also, the minimalism movement was really popular last year. Basically saying, look, you got too much stuff. you got to get rid of some things. You know, we overwhelmed Goodwill and Salvation Army with all of our stuff from tidying up. Okay, how many people did the Marie Kondo stuff last year? Okay, a handful. I know we did it. Okay, better question. How many of you are still doing it? <laughs> okay. You know, there's a researcher. Tom, oh gosh, his last name. Uh, Tom Wujic, I think, uh, did some research into how we tend to complicate things in our lives. And he created something called the Marshmallow Challenge to try to study this. You might have heard of it. You have 30 minutes to build the largest structure you can using 20 sticks of spaghetti, one yard of tape, one yard of string, and one marshmallow, which has to be placed at the top of the structure. And he analyzed different groups. Recent business school graduates, lawyers, engineers, CEOs, and even kindergartners. You know who always won the challenge? The kindergartners. You know why? Because the adults make it too complicated. The adults are too busy arguing over who's in charge and who's going to do what. And no, we should build it like this. It's more structurally sound. And the kindergartners are just like, let's just do it. You know, it's more simple. When I look at my own life, I can see how much more I make my life complicated. Trying to be humble and getting ready for this, I ask my wife, how do I make things more complicated in our lives? It's a dangerous question. I'm well aware. You know, she told me, she said, you know, I have a hard time in my marriage just taking my wife at her word and not reading into what she's trying to tell me. Filtering what she says through my own assumptions, how I would have been thinking if I said what she said. That I, I, I just make my marriage more complicated because what she says is what she means. And really, I know a lot of us in here are guilty of that. And if you really evaluate your own life, you'd, you'd see, man, we take sometimes even the most important things in our lives and we make it more complicated than it should be. And we do this in our relationship with God as well. I have a couple of scriptures here I'm going to show you. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, the NASB version, Paul is warning the church in Corinth and he says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. He's saying, I'm worried that you're going to take God and you're going to muddy it up and get too bogged down with stuff that's not just meant, just love Christ simply and purely. You know, Jesus in Matthew 11, great encouraging scripture, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? Because my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know, when I read that, sto- that passage, what it makes me think of is, is how oftentimes I see following Jesus as this heavy, complicated, hard thing to do. And what Jesus is saying, look, that's not how I ever intended it. Following me is actually supposed to be easy in the sense that it's simple. What it tells me is that we take the life that God gave us, the life of a Christian, and we make it harder. We make it heavier. 
and more complicated. Jesus was a master of taking all the extra, all the extraneous, the weighty, the distractions, and reducing them down to what really counts. Look no further than the greatest commandment. I love this. And the Pharisees are challenging Jesus about the Old Testament, saying, what, what is the most important commandment out there? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Think about what Jesus just did there. He said, there's 40 books in the Old Testament. I don't even know how many laws. I don't even know how many prophecies. If I added them all up, and Jesus said, two. You could take the entire Old Testament and reduce it down to do two things. Love God with everything you've got. And love your neighbor. And when you really think about it, it makes sense. Right? I'm not going to steal from you if I'm loving you. I'm not going to kill you if I'm loving you. I will honor God if I'm loving God. I will put him first if I'm loving God. In Matthew 6.33, the NLT version says, Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. In this chapter, this passage where, where Jesus is saying, look, we worry about so much stuff. Just stuff. He's saying it's, it's, it's a lot more simple than that. Stop worrying about all the junk. Stop worrying about everything and where it's going to come from and how you're going to get it. He says, seek God above all else. Live righteously and he's going to take care of what you need. You know, as early as five years old, back when The Land Before Time was on repeat in my household, it's a very depressing movie, by the way. I was just having a conversation, actually, the MLK Project yesterday about that. We're talking about kids' movies of, of the 90s and before and how much more depressing and scary they were than, than movies today. But I watched The Land Before Time a lot. And my mom, when I was five years old, used to, start, used to tell me, Littlefoot, you worry too much. Because even as a five-year-old, for some reason, I was stressed about life. Had to get a job. How are we going to take care of our bills? I worry about a lot of unnecessary things. And the truth is, God is trying to say it's more simple. Ultimately, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, following Jesus means something very, very simple. Bring Jesus into every area of your life. That's it. It's that simple. So as we begin the year, we're going to examine what this looks like. What does it look like to bring Jesus into the important areas of our lives? From our minds, our body, our soul, our home, our church, and our work. If he's got to be in everything that we do, these are some pretty important areas for us to look at. Man, how do I need to follow Jesus in this area of my life? So our series that we're going to be doing in the title of today is called Simplify. So the next eight weeks is what we're going to be talking about. Oh, and by the way, on our church app, there's also a uh, quiet time series that's going to go with this through the book of Mark. It was done by Kevin Maines in Orange County years ago. But I really encourage you. It's a great quiet time book. Uh, through the book of Mark, right? But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at one interaction, because we're going to keep it simple, with Jesus and his disciples, 
And really, how he was trying to help them get focused on what counts. Get rid of the, the nonsense and the noise and focus on what matters. So turn your Bible over to Matthew 16. You with me? Ready? I've been praying for you guys this morning. This is going to be good. All right. Starting in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, others say Elijah, oh wait, just give it, oh sorry. They, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Let's stop there for a moment. All right. So I love this passage. And it's probably a very familiar one. If you've been around for a while, you've probably read this passage a couple hundred times. It's still good for us to look at here together. So this is two years into Jesus' ministry. He had preached the Sermon on the Mount already, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Large crowd of people, longest sermon in the Bible. He healed the man possessed by legion. And why that's significant is it says that he sent the man into the Decapolis, the ten cities. And that area got saturated with news about who Jesus was and what he had done. He had fed the 5,000. He had also fed the 4,000. So what that means is thousands of people by this time had heard about Jesus. Heard him preach. Witnessed his miracles. Jesus was very well known in this area at that time. And in Luke 9, this, the account of this, of this, it actually says that he was, he was praying in a certain place in Caesarea Philippi, praying in, in silence with his disciples. And he turns to them and he asks them a question. But I want to, before we kind of get to this, well, actually, the question is, he says, who, ba- who basically, who do people say that I am? I just repeated myself like four times. Who do people say that I am? What are people saying about the Son of Man? Now, why this question is significant, even going on here, is not just how many people knew about Jesus at that point, but where they were. They're at this place, Caesarea Philippi. And I'm going to give you a quick background, because you know I love history. So, uh, Caesarea was actually built by Herod, and then his son Philippi actually built it to what it was. But this city was a very well-known city, very prolific, but it also had a lot of things going on. It was a heavily pagan city. There was a temple to Caesar that had been built there. There was a temple to, uh, to Greek gods, including the god Pan. You see that in the back there, the Grotto of Pan. It was actually said, historically, that if you go into that tunnel behind it, you were entering into the underworld. Okay? They had temples set up to pagan gods. There were Roman statues everywhere. So there, was an, there were ideologies and belief systems to all kinds of things that were going on at that known time. So this is the background. This is the place where Jesus decides to ask this question. And part of why I think this is interesting to me is, is 
is not just kind of what are the people that I've already preached to thinking, but are people kind of just lumping me in with what's going on here? Are people taking all these belief systems and just saying, yeah, kind of like that? That's what Jesus is. And part of even what this tells, what this communicates to me today, when you look at our world and where it's at, the world is not trying to make Christianity less complicated. Have you thought about that? From the belief systems that are in our world today, political opinions, social issues that are going on, there are so many things in our world that want to make our life following Jesus complicated. As we just read in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that's what Satan desires. He wants to complicate it. And so with, with this as his setting, Jesus goes, after everything I've done and preached, with all that the world has to distract and complicate what I'm trying to do, what are people hearing me say? Because it wasn't like Jesus was hiding. It wasn't like his message was unclear. But the answer is the disciples' response, basically, they don't know. They don't know what to make of you. Some people say you're like this guy. Some people say you're like this. Some people say you're like this. You know, the truth of today is that the opinions of what Christianity should look like today, in the 21st century, in the wake of all of our social issues, what issues Christians should be involved in and not be involved in, how church itself should go. Where, where should we meet? What kind of music should we be singing and not singing? All these things. There's, there's plenty of issues to bog down what this is supposed to be. And you know, the truth is, is, as important as some of those things are, and I'm not trying to dismiss anything, when we get stuck in this kind of thinking and, and gravitating to the conversations that the world is having, it does exactly what Paul was warning about in 2 Corinthians 11. It drags us away from the simplicity and the purity of being devoted to Christ. So after this answer, people are confused about Jesus. And it's, it's no different today. I, I get studies and things that are sent to me through all kinds of different email chains or whatever about Studies that are being done about what Christians really think about evangelism and this and that, that just, that Christianity is being warped in a worldly sense. But in spite of all that, Jesus does something interesting here. He doesn't just say, what is everybody else saying about me? So he turns to his disciples. Turns to his guys. The ones that were with him almost every day for two years. Who witnessed the miracles. Who performed the miracles. Who taught about Jesus to the lost. He turns to them. Why? Why Why ask the disciples what should have, I guess, kind of been a no-brainer? Why ask the disciples a question that, that they were asked two years ago already? And part of what we just read as well is that Jesus knew his time was coming. One year from now, he was going to be crucified. So it, says, it actually says here that from this time on, it was this conversation is where Jesus from there was just preaching about, hey, look, the day is coming when I'm going to die on the cross and I'm, and I'm going to go and be raised. So part of that is saying, man, you are my guys. You've got to be clear on this. If I'm going to be dying and going to heaven in a little bit, 
you better be clear on this question. You know, the truth of this is, this question, who do you say that Jesus is, is the most important question in our lives. Ever. Not when you were studying the Bible. Not before you became a Christian. Now, today, this moment. There's no more important question we'll ever ask ourselves in our lives. Who is Jesus? How we answer this question dictates everything about our faith, the choices we make, our future, all of it. When was the last time you asked yourself that question? This could have been a slap in the face. It could have been the disciples going, Jesus, what are you talking about? Of course we know who you are. But Jesus was recognizing something. Maybe he was even saying, look, are you guys listening to all them out there? Are you guys buying into it as well? Are you listening to what what the rest of the city is saying about me, that I'm just kind of another belief system? What do you think? What do you say? You know, whenever I, whenever I preach, part of what my goal is, 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 is I try to take a good, a good amount of time to consider, okay, what is God trying to communicate to me about this? I don't want to just, just preach intellectually or just try to preach a scripture or whatever. I want to really try to take time to consider this. And part of what, what this led me to as I was thinking about it and, and praying about it was it made me think of 1 Timothy 6, when Paul is telling Timothy to remember the confession that he made in the presence of many witnesses. And if you're a baptized disciple of Jesus, you know the confession. What is your good confession? It's that Jesus is Lord. That was never supposed to be lip service. That's not a hymn you sing in church. That was a declarative statement about the way that you live your life from here on out going forward. And at the end of Paul's life, he was reminding Timothy, hey, don't forget what your confession was. Don't forget the question that Jesus just asked about who he is to you. And it made me have to take pause to go, man, I said that years ago, but is Jesus still Lord of my life today? When I look at where my priorities are, when I look at where my worries are, does it, does it communicate that Jesus is Lord of my life today? Not in a guilt way, not in a, it wasn't yesterday, but today, right now. Jesus is, Jesus is even helping his disciples say, look, just because you're my guys doesn't mean you're beyond asking this. But let's continue to read what happens here because I love the next part of this story too. So after Jesus says he's going to die and be raised to life, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. I love Peter. He's a lovable buffoon. (laughs) Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit 
their soul? Or what can anyone exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. All right. I want to take a second to acknowledge my man Peter here. I love this guy. I love this guy because Peter helps me to, helps me to see that I, even though I'm a buffoon, Jesus can still love me too. So Peter just, just still, can you get that around your head? He just said that Jesus is the Christ and then he rebukes him right after this. But think about even the comfortability that he must have had in his relationship with Jesus to even do that. But it's still the audacity. I mean, come on. You just said that this guy is the Messiah, the Christ. We believe you're the Son of God. And then he pulls him aside and says, Hey, Jesus, you probably shouldn't say stuff like that. All right? Some of the guys are going to get uncomfortable, if you know what I mean. But Jesus says something really powerful in this moment. After he calls him Satan, which the word means adversary, it means you're against me. He says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus tells this guy, this guy, he just got done praising, saying, you're going to get the keys to the kingdom. You can be a leader. You can be a miracle worker. You can be the best friend of Jesus. You can be the holder of the keys of the kingdom and still be an enemy and an adversary of Jesus. Let that one sink in for a moment. Why? Because his thinking wasn't godly. His thinking was about himself. It wasn't the news that he was hearing about Jesus going, I, I believe, came from a good intention response. But I believe part of what it is is that, is that you say, man, Jesus, you can't die. You can't die like that. I mean, come on. We need you. You got you to gotta save more souls. You gotta, there's so much work to be done. You can't be going. But little did he know he was standing in the way of God's plan by suggesting that Jesus not do that. We can be doing right things, knowing the right answers, but be opposed to Jesus in some of our choices. And I believe it's because we can create a version of following Jesus that's based on us and what we think is right and best. You know, when I've shared this before, when the years when I was really struggling with, uh, with pornography and impurity, part of what I had convinced myself of for a while was it was the lesser of evils. That as long as I wasn't out committing some kind of act with a woman, as long as I, as long as I was keeping to myself, as long, as long as it wasn't this, as long as I didn't cross this line or this line or this line or this line, then... I could be okay with this. And I created this version of, of sin and Christianity that was acceptable. And sadly, I lived that way for years. I didn't like it. I knew, I knew if I was really being honest with myself that it was wrong, that that's not how God wanted me to be. But that's where I was at. 
And it may not be something like that for you, but we do the same thing in our relationship with God. We take, we take truths of Christianity, truths of Jesus, of the Bible, and we make it try to fit what we want our life to be. For pleasure, for ambition, for advancement, for relationship, whatever it may be. Not knowing that by our choices, we're maybe standing as an adversary to Jesus. And so on this point of trying to think about things in a godly way, after his interaction with Peter, he turns to the rest of his disciples. He turns to his group, to his guys. He wanted to make sure, he said, look, okay, if Peter's struggling with thinking ungodly, then I'm going to help all you guys. And what he does here is he takes them right back to the same exact thing he preached to them two years earlier when he sent them out. He didn't come up with a new sermon, new plan, new direction. He literally almost word for word repeats Matthew, um, oh shoot, it's good, it's there, trust me. When he pulls his disciples together, the twelve, and commissions them to be sent out, he literally almost takes that same exact paragraph and uses it here. You know, disciples of Jesus, you've been hearing these words for years. Maybe your whole, your whole spiritual life, you've been hearing the words that Jesus preached to his disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it or find it. What good will it be for, the man to, for somebody to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? You've heard that your whole spiritual life. You've taught it, you've preached it. But I want to encourage us to tune in. Jesus thought that the best thing to help them think about things of God and not of man was to tell them something they already knew. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. He tells the men who gave up everything, who left their livelihood, their futures behind, to go with Jesus... That they need to deny themselves and take up their cross. And you know what? I can struggle with that because they were doing it. They were doing it. What could he mean by this? He was trying to remind them, I think, of the point of that. It's not about you. It's about me. They were going to get a very visual representation in one year from now when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, hearing him labor and pray, God, not my will, but your will be done. You know, as, as Christians, and part of it I think is in the world that we live in, but, but I think we can kind of misunderstand what discipleship is in the sense that the goal of discipleship is to be a better version of you. You get what I mean by that? And we're here at church to better ourselves, to, to be a, a more righteous version of you. But we're missing the truth of that. The best version of you isn't you. It's Jesus. It doesn't mean losing your personality or your gifts, the things that make you unique, the things that God endowed you with, that makes you special, that makes him love you and cherish you. It's not, it's not that. It's not giving those things up. It means 
wrapping your identity and who you are, how you live, the choices you make around Jesus. Not your job, not your family, not your social circle, not your money, not your hobbies. All these things are a version of what he's just trying to tell them. You're trying to gain the whole world. If that's what your identity is in, you're trying to gain the world. You're trying to make this life heaven. And this life is about getting to heaven. You know, in my life currently, I can look at this and, and I, I can think back to where I was when I was 14 reading these scriptures the first time. Deny yourself and take up your cross daily. You know what? They have a new meaning for me now at 32 years old with three kids. In a lot of ways. And part of what it means to me now as I think about it is what I have to deny is my love for my children. And not in the sense that I don't love them and take care of them. I want to clarify that. I'm not ditching my children to be here with you guys. But I see in my life how I want to make decisions not based on what God really wants me to do, but based on what I want for my children instead. I see that. I see how much I want my kids to be successful and have, have a college fund. I want to make decisions financially about them. That, that I see that when Jesus talks about, man, no other relationship has got to mean more to you than me from Luke 14. That takes on a new phase now at 32 years old. Denying myself is not something that, that I just have the luxury of doing sometimes. You know, the apostles were trying to please God, but they were off base in their thinking. They were trying to do what's right, but they were going about it in their way. They needed a reminder that the life of following Jesus and thinking godly, it's not really that complicated. It's pretty simple. And this is for us, church. This is for us to pay attention to right now. We have awesome disciples in this room who love Jesus. And hopefully it doesn't come across like I'm just trying to slam all of us here. We've got awesome disciples in this room that love Jesus with all their heart. But at the same time, man, I think we've also gotten off track a bit. And so I want to simplify it for us. We're going to take it from this passage. Let's simplify, all right? Who do you say that Jesus is? When you look at your life now, and again, this has to go beyond, this is not an intellectual acknowledgement. It's not the what does the scripture say. It's the who do you say that Jesus is now in your life? Is he the Christ? Is he Lord? Because we've got to remind ourselves. And, and when you think about it, it, it changes your thinking a little bit more. To go, man, if I really believe that, then what does that mean about the way that I'm going about my day? And the second thing is what is the part of your life right now? What is the thing that's in your thinking? Your identity, your selfishness, your pride, your fear. What is the thing that you need to hang back up on the cross? To just follow Jesus. Because again, it's, it's that simple. We can go into where your money's going. We can go into how you use your time. We can go into all those relationships. Really, it boils down to those two things. 
Who do you say that Jesus is? And what do you need to give up, deny, in order to follow Jesus again wholeheartedly? I think simplifying, bringing us back to some of the simple truths of Jesus is going to help revolutionize and even create some of the vision that we want for this year. But we're not going to get to all the vision and all the things that God really wants to do by the end of 2020 if we're not doing the simple things, the simple questions. So I want, to, I want to throw it out there, church. as we're studying, Not just as we're studying this out, but as we look at our lives and our relationship with God, let's not complicate it. Let's keep it simple. Amen. Love you guys.